It's Monday, May 25th, 2020. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode number seven of the 5049 Records Corona Cast. How you guys doing? Thanks for joining us for another FaceTime conversation between myself and a musician uh, who, in this case, has appeared on the show quite a few times already. Someone who I would describe, without uh, any exaggeration, as probably one of the best trumpet players in the world. You can hear him playing behind me, and you already know who it is. It's Peter Evans. Let's have a listen uh, real quickly to his new project, Being and Becoming. I gotta say, I've known Peter a long time, and this new band of his, and this new record that just came out, Being and Becoming, I think might be me, uh, possibly my favorite thing he's done yet. Today on the show, Peter Evans. Hey, before we get started, I just want to uh, plug something real quick. I mentioned it a couple weeks ago. I've got a couple of new recordings available. Most importantly, I want to direct your attention to a record that I worked really long, really hard on. It's called Sistema Mundi Totius, Volume 1. I know that's kind of a, a long title, especially when you couple it with the fact that I have a really long name. This is a record that I really, really, really put a lot of time, energy, sweat, blood, tears, hard work into. I would be really delighted if you would consider checking it out. It's music for four clarinets and two percussionists, lots of electronics. Um, it is, I think, probably the strangest record I've ever done. I would describe it as pure stream of consciousness music. And if you want to check it out, go to the 5049 website. That's 5049records.com. You can pick up a physical copy of it there. If you want to check it out digitally, go to, go to my Bandcamp, jeremiahsimmerman.bandcamp.com. While you're at Bandcamp, uh, I would just remind you that the first Friday of June and July, that's June 5th and July 3rd, Bandcamp, in an effort to help out musicians who are having a tough time during the pandemic, they are waiving all of their fees, all of their cut of the, the download. So consider any music you're going to download. Uh, consider saving up and, and doing like a shopping spree that day because those fees, those saved fees, go a really long way in helping the musicians out. Uh, I, I can't state that enough. Think about that with today's guest. Peter Evans. Like me, he's been self-releasing music for the last several years. He's got new music out, including uh, the little bit that we just listened to, Being and Becoming. He's got a lot of tremendous music up on his band camp. So just real quick, I want to I point that out there, that if, if you're interested in checking out Peter's music, my music, any artist that, that you feel uh, compelled to, to give money to for music, consider just holding off until the first Friday, June 5th, July 3rd, and do it at Bandcamp. It really helps. All right, that's out of the way. Peter Evans, you guys know him. Um, I sourced a lot of questions via social media. And I'm just going to, today is unique and different, uh, even by, look, a lot of the questions that came in, 
were fundamentally the same question. It seemed like a lot of people were interested in two things in, in talking to Peter. One, how he developed and develops his solo concerts and solo recordings. Um, and then a lot of people were really interested in his practice routine. And practice versus rehearsal, what does that mean? So rather than read, um, you know, 10, 12, 14 versions of the same question to Peter, uh, I the first like 45 minutes of this show is devoted to those two questions, but just kind of more like a seamless conversation. I talked about it with Peter at the start of the show before we hit record, and I kept it in my mind to try and get as much of these answers excuse me, as much of these questions answered as possible without actually reading the questions just to kind of make it, you know, feel a little more seamless. For some of the questions that came in that seemed, you know, a little more nuanced, a little a little more unusual perhaps, uh, those we just answered directly. I read them and then uh, Peter answered them. One last thing, one question that came in which was directed to me, I did not uh, get into on the show, it's a cooking question. It's from my friend Max. He had a question about uh, cacio e pepe, a pasta dish. So I'm going to answer that question at the end of the show. If you, you just want to hear about the trumpet, I'm not going to bore you with, with uh, information about pasta. But Max, just all the way at the end, after I finish the conversation with Peter, I'm going to talk to you about pasta. Um, all right, check out Peter Evans. Go to moreismorerecords.com and then check out his band camp. Lots of awesome music, and uh, here we are. Here's me and Peter this last Saturday on FaceTime. Whoa. Yes. Yeah, man. Yes, Peter Evans. <laughs> yeah. How are you? This shirt that you're wearing, I feel like uh, your move to Portugal has like brought out a new aspect of your, your style. Check this out, man. Should I wear this one instead? I had this other one. This is... Where are you getting these? Where, where am I getting them? Yeah. <laughs> like... H and M. Actually, no. Today, so today I went. I I was out for a. It's like so. It's basically now from now until October. It's going to be like ninety degrees every day. Jesus Christ! So we walked. I had to like. Um, there's a good record store here that wanted to buy a bunch of the Being and Becoming records and some other shit. So we walked like across town. It's like twenty minutes. Yeah. To the to the store, and I was like, "Fuck, it's super hot." So I've already had a kind of Lisbon kind of summer day kind of vibe. Yeah. Is are you inside your apartment? Where are you? I'm in this kind of like attic place there was there's this whole attic that, that I, i'm it's like commandeered it's this sort of studio space so i i'll show, we'll we'll talk about it in the, like my whole desk Whoa, but wait this is part of your apartment or? yeah this yeah. is amazing this is it's like a awesome. real workspace it's amazing yeah yeah and you can practice unself-conscious yeah. well the apart this apartment is actually it's really big and it's extremely loud like i can if if maya like pours a glass of water in the kitchen on the other side of the apartment i can hear it like it's right next to me really yeah, but she doesn't care about noise, and no, nobody in the building cares about the trumpet. So I just, I just kind of practice with the. So windows you could be heard throughout the building. I can be heard throughout the whole block, probably. Right. But nobody cares. <laughs> you know, my neighbors uh, uh, next door have split New York for the summer. They're like, we're just going to oh, completely wow. ride it out, and they're like, yeah. if you water our plants, you can use our apartment for whatever you want. Oh man, that's awesome. Well, for me, like, I cannot practice the instrument if i feel like someone can hear me i'm way too yeah, self-conscious yeah. so now yeah. i actually have this practice space that's awesome i mean i think like but i realize that for me the reason that is is that like 
it I finally I mean, yes, I'm a self-conscious person, but I think when you practice at, at minimum, you should be practicing things that you aren't good at. Of course, that's the whole you, point. You, yeah. you should sound like shit when you're practicing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I'll be practicing like something really just boneheaded, like just like something really just like I'm in my own world. I'm just doing like a, some slow scale or articulation exercise. And out of nowhere, you know, Maya will be like, oh, that sounds awesome. And it's just like, I wasn't aware it sounded like anything. <laughs> you Wait, know? you're so just... I'm, you're... I'm, I'm just going like bop, 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 or something like that, you know? But yeah, no, no one, no one likes to know that people are listening, that it, no one likes to know that people are actively listening to them practice. That's the worst. Well, right. And you don't want to feel like you're irritating people and you don't, for, it's like a, a combination of not wanting to irritate people, but more like feeling vulnerable because you're just, yeah. you're being at your weakest. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I really try not to like in New York, I think I built up a, for some reason, Every I lived in New York for 15 years, and I never had a problem with practicing ever in any apartment. I practiced, and I didn't practice in the middle of the night. Right. But I, every apartment I had, I would always be straight up with people when I moved in, like, hey, so this is something that's going to happen between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. or something. And everyone was like, hey, it's no problem. And I never, I never heard any complaints. And I practiced a lot when I was home, but... I think it just made me kind of just – I just don't even think about it anymore. Honestly, you know? as I have a couple neighbors in my building. like So you, you've been in my apartment, and you know the, yeah, wall, yeah. the walls are pretty thick. You, yeah. When you're in the apartment, you can't hear what's happening in other apartments. But in the, in the common spaces, you can hear everything. Oh, okay. And there's a, a piano player in my building and a sax player. And oh, wow. I, I actually love hearing people practice. Yeah, yeah. I love it. If, I mean, if they're good. If it's not like someone playing violin for the first time. No, no. But just the idea of someone like working on their shit is a cool feeling. Well, yeah. And also there's something about the repetition of, again, yeah. if they're like, you know, a pretty good musician and there's, you know, like evenness to their intervals and, you know, the yeah, intonation's yeah. pretty good. Like I actually really enjoy hearing something kind of get like increasingly yeah. better. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So you, I mean, you, you've always practiced every day a thousand hours a day. Um... No, I mean, I, are we, is this the thing? Are we in it now? Yeah, we're in it. Oh, shit. Okay, so I, uh, yeah, I, I, I would say more like I've gone through periods. Like, obviously, when I was, when I was like a kid, practiced a lot. Um, when, I was in, when I was in college, I practiced a shitload. Yeah. Because um, there was also, I mean, I went to Oberlin. So other than playing, you know, performances of people's pieces and whatever things that happened on campus, there's nothing really else to do. So I shed a, like a, I mean, in Oberlin, you either work really hard or you like go to orgies and do lots of drugs, or some people did both. There are some people that manage both, but I uh, I practiced a shitload. I really practiced a lot, and like I, my, you know. And then in New York, it's been ups and downs. Like I've had a whole, I've had like you know maybe a few weeks here and there, a month here or there, or whatever, where I'm like super practicing a ton. And then when I'm on the road, I don't. I mean, it's really, I think it's pretty normal when I'm yeah, on the road. I, yeah. don't, I don't really practice, but the trumpet is this weird thing where you have to like kind of keep it. You have to, I, the thing, my line in like, in like when I'm doing classes and stuff recently is like to get other musicians to understand like what our thing is. It's like trumpet players are generally like 90% of what we do is our practicing is just to not get worse. It's, like, such a, it's not a forgiving instrument of, of laziness. Well, we, 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 we practice to simply maintain where, whatever, whatever level we're at. And then, and then there's practicing to improve. Right. You know, but a huge part of the thing is just maintaining maintaining your fundamental ability to operate the instrument, which, which that's already kind of difficult. And that, that's so. a, that's a purely uh, physical pursuit or is there, is there like, 
do you find something deeper, some deeper meaning in that aspect of it? Oh, totally, man. I mean, especially the older I get, the more I look at it as like, I don't even look, I, I, I embrace the tedium of it, the repetition, the, the whole relationship between like, um, not ego, my, the relationship between me and this thing for me, it's not, it's almost transcended like music. Like, of course, yes, it involves, you know, being able to play creatively and keep your chops up and all that stuff We're like kind of worldly stuff. Yeah. But I think, I think that like the, the older I've gotten and the, the more I've just like, um, uh, solidified my bond with that aspect of trumpet playing, the more I'm kind of cool with the sort of like weird, like meditation sort of religious aspect, just the, just the practice of it, just the idea of like, just do my warm up and just make sure things work correctly and just having satisfaction and just that. I'm very satisfied by I mean, just what, that. What, what does the practice routine look like for you uh, on a regular basis? Well, now, do you, do you, if you mean practice routine, that's something different. If you're talking about the thing I'm just talking about, that's different. Because okay. for me, that the first part, they're kind of warming up, making it's almost like a diagnostic, making sure everything works. Well, so you're playing long sure, tones. You're yeah, it's 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 shit. All trumpet players do. It's like I start low and quiet. I build it up over the each overtone series, like each valve combination, I build up from bottom to top and uh, do it all quietly. I do it really methodically, do it slowly. And then I start to add, um, I test like articulation in different registers to make sure it's crispy yeah. and precise. And that whole process, like I could do it in a taxi cab in five minutes if I'm in a hurry, or I could do it for like 45 minutes, right. which also that's, that's pretty normal for trumpet players. Like you can, if you need to, if you're in a pinch, you can like kind of warm yourself up quickly. But you can also stretch it. So, like, yeah, for me, the normal day-to-day version is, like, about a half an hour or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then um, then I might even do other shit, like, really repetitive, just play notes over and over while, while watching dumb YouTube videos or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then that kind of, that starts to bleed into, like, practicing, which is a whole different thing. I'm, I'm, I'm realizing, like... Well, we, we, so we, when we talked uh, a week or two ago, whatever it was, you know, we, we sort yeah. of touched on this thing, like, now that no one's got gigs... I, right. What do you? It's this question of like, well, what am I practicing for? And yeah, and you, yeah, yeah. So what 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 are you practicing for right now? Um. Yeah. I don't. I don't even look at it like that. I don't practice. It turns out. I mean, I'm. I'm in a way. I'm. I have a tiny glimmer of satisfaction in my. Uh, my relationships. I feel like this is obviously this whole period is a big test for, for anybody you know that has. That that's you know, for instance, as a musician or has this kind of relationship with an instrument where, like we talked about last week, if you're not practicing for if you're uh, an average person on the street, if you said, okay, you're musicians, so you practice all the time, you practice so that you can be better, so that when you when you perform, it's good. Like that's a very kind of rational way to look at it. But it turns out that's not really why musicians practice. Mm-hmm. It's just not. I mean, that's just not what we do. Otherwise, we just all not touch our instruments at all during this entire time. So. For me, I, I think the act of practicing, the practice of practicing is not quite related to playing performances. It's more about uh, creative process, sure. like challenging myself, uh, going deeper into things that I've kind of established some kind of base level of. So, And something I've realized, actually, it's, you know, you realize that when you start to go down a certain, like, you know, for instance, you have a very particular thing that you that you do that's like not normal for clarinet players like you do electronics and you do mixing and you you combine the instrument with electronics you do all the stuff 
for you, it seems normal, but for your average clarinet player, they have no idea. So for me, it's like, like I had a student a couple days ago who was like, we're talking about practicing and they were like, yeah, I'm practicing, blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh man, like actually shit. I don't, I don't, these days I'm not really like practicing like a piece so that it's done so that I can perform it. It's not mm-hmm. like that at all. It's mm-hmm. super open-ended. It's like, I'm practicing like methods of assembling materials and i'm basically i'm basically in shorthand practicing for improvisation i'm like deepening my yeah my ability to speak in whatever vocabulary i'm constructing for myself and hardwiring this kind of stuff into my system so i can kind of juggle with it in a way that's fun um, would, would you say that's sort of like an evolving uh, uh series of practice exercises or are there specific things you can point to practicing by yourself in your apartment that helps you become uh, a better more agile improviser no it's not that general it's more like i, I look it's more local like so yeah. for you know like certain it's fairly dry what i do so like a lot of the stuff i've been working on the last couple of years it's like on my instagram a couple of recent posts is like basically taking a series of notes, arranging them in some way in the register, not too far apart that it's so super hard, but far enough apart that they, they, that the ear of a listener can separate them out as separate things. So maybe an octave apart. And, uh, and then I'll practice these kind of rhythmic permutations of those. And there's really simple. It could just be like a major scale with some octave transposition. And then I'll start to do these kind of rhythmic permutations of them so that the the, the different levels, like let's say there's one on the bottom of the treble staff and another one on the top, start to phase and move around and sound like this, these independent voices. And so that is the kind of thing that like maybe two years ago I started working on it and I was like, okay, like this is way beyond what I'm able to do. So why don't I write out like an exercise and like hmm. just try to learn just what it feels like to do it. And I was thinking even back then, like, oh, man, like, I bet if I just keep hammering away at this, I'll probably get to the point where I can improvise all of the modules. I can improvise the notes. I can improvise. I can even change the pattern while it's moving. And only now, like, even in the last couple of months, has that started to happen on a very small level. So that's gratifying. I mean, do you ever check out this guy, Simon Barker? You know him, the percussionist, drummer? Yeah. Why do I know that name? He's, I don't know. He doesn't come to the States much, but he's in a, he's an Australian guy. Uh-huh. And he's, um... Super heavy, and uh, he he's really good at talking about a lot of these things. And and I heard him do an interview or talk once where he's he's saying he's like um, he's just one of these people. That he's always integrating new stuff into his system, like in a really organic way. And so he talks about this idea of like when you start to learn a new skill set on your instrument for improvising, that you just don't judge it. You just you just practice it. You just learn it, and you just get into it. And then maybe after a year, you kind of look around and. Sort of, you remember that David Letterman seg- segment, Is This Anything? Where no. like some kid, yeah, he Letterman had this really nice, like, kind of real attachment to kind of old late night TV that was like, it was, it was not trying to hide the fact that it's wasting your time in the middle of the night. You know, it wasn't right. trying to like talk about politics or be woke or anything. It was just sort of like, here's a kid doing a cartwheel. Like, well, is this anything? You know, Roddy <laughs> Dangerfield comes on, tells him dirty jokes. It was sort of like, it's 12 o'clock at night. What am I doing with my life? Like, that kind of thing. So, so Simon Barker talks about this idea of like at a certain point you sort of just assess what you've done for a year and say like is this anything is this a mm-hmm. thing or am I wasting my time, which just takes patience and just that that thing of like reserving judgment and just kind of practicing, practicing stuff just for the sake of working on something you know yeah not really for anything 
Exactly. But I guess, yeah. you know, I, I want to make sure uh, that I cover a lot of aspects of, of, of practice. Um, <laughs> so we don't have to talk about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, at, le- I, at least, I, definitely when you were in New York, I don't know what it's like for you now in, um, in Portugal. Yeah. But in addition to the improvising and band leading, you were doing a lot of interpretation of contemporary yeah. music. And even like, I, I think you were doing that Bach piece every year uh, on the board. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so if you're, let's, let's say you're interpreting uh, a piece of, of new music, um, yeah. it's, and it doesn't, it's a piece of music that, you know, like it, it's truly new music, recently composed, yeah. you might be right. the first person playing it. Right. What does your practice routine look like to kind of get inside that music? Well, I'm not here. I'm not doing any of that stuff. Right. Um, there's not really a scene for it actually in this city. There's barely a scene for it even in, in Portugal. From what I from what I can uh, can figure out. I mean, I've met a couple of heavy contemporary music players that that are from Portugal, and often what they do is they go work in other other countries. So, so I don't know. That might maybe that'll happen here. I don't know. But in New York, probably my experience was like a lot of other of my colleagues in that world, which is you're so overworked, you have so little time that you're kind of just like touching the stuff to make sure you basically get the gist of it and you learn it in rehearsals. Yeah. Like here's a big myth, myth, myth buster kind of thing. Like, and you know, maybe I'm sure people in my, in that scene will disagree with me, but I have a feeling a lot of people, whether they'll say it or not, will agree is that contemporary music is maybe one of the least rehearsed and least practiced forms of music that you can find mm-hmm. because it's all about notation. It's all about, okay, like we have two rehearsals. It, everything's written out. If you just do what's on the page, you'll get it together good enough for the concert. And so like, so there, check this out. Okay. I check this out. I played the Brian Fernie Ho composer portrait concert at Miller theater in 2005. So this guy, this is like the most, the Mount Everest of complex notation. Right, right, right. right. And we did this. He, he has this whole cycle of pieces uh, called Dungeons of Invention. I think that's the name of the cycle. And, uh, and so it was like all these different pieces, cha- two, two chamber orchestra pieces and then some, some smaller chamber work. So I was in both orchestra pieces. And it was for like single winds, single strings, single brass percussion, super hard, cream of the crop, New York freelance crowd, super hard shit. I mean, yeah, it's funny how people Not- spend months working on one measure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the thing is, his his writing is actually, from what I could see, it's actually pretty idiomatic in terms of like how things fit on the instrument. Like the guy knows his instruments. It's not mm-hmm. like he's not writing like notes on the violin that are below the low string or right, something right, like that. Right, 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 like, right. Not like novice mistakes. So I remember we had this rehearsal for one of these super hard pieces, and it's like so daunting. There's so much on the page. Everything's just about are we even in the notated music is just about like are we in the same vertically aligned space? Mm-hmm. And his, his thing makes it even more difficult because all the rhythms are these huge tuplets that go over these huge spans of time, like 21 over 15 so, rhythms with other right. rhythms inside. So check this out. I remember we, we were doing this rehearsal like at, at uh, one of those, I, I can't believe I can't remember the name, it's like Manny's or one, one of these old like New York rehearsal spaces. On like 46th Street or something. Yeah, and we got let out early. We got let out because it was sort of just like, well, I guess... We basically like it was almost like an an, an open admission of like, well, we're not, we're not going to stay here for eight hours. Like this rehearsal is three hours long. It's like we've been here for two hours and forty five minutes. We basically got it. See you at the gig. It was like that. Was Fernie Howe there? No, no, no. He did come to the. He did. He was there for the, the rehearsal, the dress okay. rehearsal and concert. 
And like the band sounded good, but it, I just thought it was so funny. Like out of any music, this is we should be staying 15 minutes late, not leaving 15 minutes <laughs> early. And then I, I have to say that like tons of like I've actually met like a lot of improvisers or jazz people, like people that like someone like Robagon or Nick Joswiak or people with killer chops. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll still say because they're not really in that world, and they'll be like, "Oh man, like that shit seems so like intimidating." It's like, dude, you would destroy that music like what do you it's not that hard it's not if you can read music and you can play the conductor it's really not that hard a lot of stuff (laughs) well i i have to wonder like and you know there obviously isn't one answer for this but when you see living composers establish relationships with instrumentalists where where there's like clearly like a love and a trust and a respect yeah how much of it is just that that instrumentalist decided to put in the extra 15 minutes and like kind of own the music a little bit more well that's when you start to get into it can be like that but then to be okay what i'm saying is really cynical but no it's not the 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 positive side of it is that then you have things where the social bond between the performer and the composer is such that the performer wants to give the 15 minutes because they actually believe in it and the composer inspires that kind of yeah um that the composer has that kind of charisma or or um kind of like aesthetic oomph to their music that makes you kind of want to go deeper and play the shit out of it uh and you see that in New York all the time. I mean, that's mm-hmm. also a thing you see. I mean, that's that's the good that's the good side of all this stuff. But right. the sort of work the sort of work a day professional contemporary because when I kind of like I like decided to be a freelancer. Like when I was my first few years in New York, I had this really stubborn idea of like I'm only going to make money by doing normal jobs, keep my music thing separate. And then after a few years, I was like, man, these jobs suck so so like i went to this nice music school i can read music i should like try to get some gigs playing trumpet and so so what i mean i don't know if it works like this anymore but back then it was like this kind of hilariously old school thing where you actually have to call up freelancers that are experienced and that are like guys in the scene and be like humble your be like hi it's me you remember me we met once i'm kind of looking for work can you put me on something and then maybe it'll throw you something Mm mm-hmm that that's actually how it worked and like this is like 2004 or 5 is when i started to make that switch and one of the funny things that i found at that time was that one of the main because there's all these different slices of freelancing there's like you can go be like a broadway freelancer you can do orchestra stuff you can you, do you were like never you were never union right no okay. i did a couple union gigs but it, it, in a way like the the ease with which i was accepted on those union gigs and like showed me kind of how maybe weak that system was like i it would be great if that was a strong system, but in New York, it's just it's just not. I mean, right. just, it just doesn't work like that. So, um, so yeah, so I started doing freelance gigs, and I was surprised at the time that, like, wow, a lot of the freelance gigs are contemporary music gigs. Uh-huh. Like, there seemed to be like a new, new, a new contemporary music group popping up like every month or every year. There was a new band, so I did a lot of just like mercenary, just yeah, like I subbed with Alarmal Sound. I, I was doing stuff for, with Ice before I was a member of it all kinds of random stuff, you know, we're reading some composers, uh, work. So, so that's a whole world. I mean, I, think but I mean, were you, were you also doing like $50 salsa gigs? $50 salsa gigs? No, I did. I did some jazz. I did some big band gigs and stuff yeah. like that. But mainly, mainly I did that. I did like classical, like wedding ceremonies, that kind of thing. And then I did, um, and then I did my own like stuff, you know, like what we would do, like play like the poor house or something. Mm-hmm. And then I had day jobs until I kind of was able to phase. Like Jones Apparel was my last real day job, and that kind of that phased into 
the full time music thing. Yeah. Jones, yeah. Jones Apparel. Yeah. I, still, <laughs> I actually, I have to say, man, for, I mean, I'm not even going to explain what Jones Apparel is, but it's, a, <laughs> no, but I will say, like, when I think back, I, as much, as much as I hated that job, yeah. When I think back on it, I'm like, man, I could have juiced that so much harder than I did. Like, it was pretty sweet in that, like, I would literally go to the Bryant Park and talk on yeah. the phone for three hours and no one would even know I was gone. Oh, I mean, my job was I was replacing this guy named Wilson, who was basically like a like a like a foot. I knew like, Wilson. Uh, uh, remember Wilson? Yeah. I was like, yeah, I replaced him for the summer. So he was basically. Wait, hold on, Peter. You got me? Yeah, well, I lost you. But uh, so so you were replacing Wilson, who, if I remember correctly, and and uh, was fundamentally or mildly, um, you know, uh, neurodivergent. Yes, yes, and he was he was still a better employee than me. Yes. Okay, <laughs> but what was the story you're going to tell about Wilson? Oh, nothing. I never actually met the guy. I just I'm, oh. that was that was my job for the blank art with my boss, and right. like, he he got me the, he got me that job for the summer because I needed a job. So right, yeah. So anyway. I guess you know this is a, a good time to ask about the solo stuff because a lot of so a lot of people are asking about solo playing, and yeah. you, you and I have talked a bit about solo playing, and I still remember yeah. something you said to me back during that time, like 2006 yeah. or something, where like I I think I did one of the first solo gigs I ever did, and I fell on my fucking face. Yeah. And I asked you for advice, and you were like, just fucking put together a tight five minutes. And when you got that, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, then, yeah. yeah, but then you were like, you know, make a f- five minutes of music and then try to make it 10. And then, you know, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. But, and dude, as, as like simple as that advice was, it was hugely helpful. And I've, give, I've oh, cool. recirculated that advice a million times to people. That's funny, man, because the only reason that I even had that, the only reason I was able to say that uh, was because I did that. Not like, yeah. I, not because I had like some plan. That's just what I, that's just how it worked for me. So like, I never actually heard of anybody else doing it like that. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I just, it's just kind of, for me, it just kind of, that's the way it worked. Like I was doing these super small things and then kind of just got, the pieces got bigger and bigger until I stopped thinking about it in that way as this big imposing thing. Mm-hmm. But um, maybe we have never talked about this. I'm trying to think about our last one, conversation about, like this uh, for the podcast. But something I've noticed, something that I noticed about New York that I thought was maybe a downside to the artistic, something that impacted the, 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 the improvising actually in a negative way was, so a few years ago, I remember doing a stone gig. And I'm not going to mention no names. I did a stone gig with some musicians that were like, younger but super good and i was like okay you guys want to do a gig and they're like yep and this is i had done stone weeks several times by that point so so we, we set up and we do the sound check and it's like all right let's test you two together us three together whole band killer you know how sound checks people mm-hmm. just like try to do their cool shit and it's mm-hmm. like well this, this gig's gonna be a walk in the park <laughs> the gig was a just disaster it was just like it was imagine just like a just you're going through like a toll booth and people just keep cutting you like the momentum just kept, <laughs> just perpetual death for the whole show and you know a, a set at the stone isn't is 45 minutes to an hour and i was just like we're gonna it's a just, real gig yeah we're gonna play and we're gonna we're gonna stop when the set's over i just figured that's what people do and what i realized after the show was like oh like these players are incubating in this kind of like DIY improv scene in New York where the set times are actually generally like 15 to 30 minutes. Like that's a respectable length for a gig. If you improvise for 20 minutes 
at like um, much mores, mm-hmm. that's fine. Nobody bats an eye. But I learned about free improvising, like performing actually more like in Europe, where improvisation for better or worse still lives in the kind of jazz infrastructure. So if you go do a improv gig, it could easily be two sets that are an hour long each with a break, <laughs> you know, like a jazz gig. I mean, it's um, actually, honestly, I, I would point out this word right here as the different, uh, uh, what makes it different is it's a gig. Like that, with, because, because yeah. of the jazz world, there is like, it's a professional job experience. It's a gig. So that means that the, the implication is a full set uh, yeah. with like a general sense that like, okay, they're, it's one band playing, one set. Right. They're paying 15 bucks to get in. Like you kind of right. like, that, for me anyway, like that influences my thinking as where if it's, you know, six, six different sets at much more's. Right. I'd be kind of un- unlikely to call that a gig. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I have conflicted feelings about it because I saw a lot of 20 minute gigs and much more that were so fucking good. Like yeah. when I first started doing shit in Europe, one of the things that I remember thinking really clearly was like, man, I know so many bands in New York that would mop the floor with these guys. Like I'd be at some festival and I'd see something and I'd be like, I've seen like, I've seen like just like Brandon Seabrook and Weasel and Tim just show yeah. up, no rehearsal, play the, the craziest, most like nuanced communicative improvisation and then be in Europe and be like, man, but so I think something about the 20 minute sets, there's like some kind of compact uh, release of energy that happens when you only play for that long, which is really impressive and and can be really awesome. The question is like, is that a 20 minute slice of something greater or is it just 20 minutes? Right. You know? Right. So, yeah, I guess you know the question there or then is, well, how do you how do you if you want take that twenty minute nugget and let it breathe so that it does fill out an hour so that right. you, so that or just maybe not so much that as you can have an hour where you're generating new ideas and it doesn't feel forced or right. or like under pressure. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, this, this is kind of relating to the thing about building up like a building up a set if we're going to talk about like a comedian like building up a set from little to big but the funny thing is i've definitely been on stage with like you know for me a big education has been like being on stage with much older more experienced musicians that are sometimes senior sit like old people like in their 70s or maybe even 80s where i'm just like holy shit like we're in the middle of the second set and they're not even close to running out of material like they're barely even they haven't even like pulled out like their main shit yet, you know? So for me, like those experiences have been like, have been really instructive in terms of like, just conserve your energy and like figure out how to make a lot out of a little sometimes because you right. never know. Well, you do know? you, do you, this is kind of unrelated, but I'm just curious. Like, is there, are you cognizant or have you been cognizant at times when you're playing with like literally senior citizens yeah. uh, of, of, having of you potentially needing to like shoulder more weight just based on physical demands? No, I really haven't had that yet. I mean, I've, like I said, I've played with some pretty old people, so (laughs) I, I don't know. It's just not, uh, I think that, um, if anything, it's the opposite. Like I've definitely felt like people are playing under the bus that are 40 years older than me. Like not, not in terms of of experience or wisdom or like some ephemeral shit, but in terms of just sheer physical, yep. Like being able to just deliver shit physically. Like I did a duo show with Evan like last year where he jokes that I, he jokes with me that like I'm putting him through the paces, but 
it's like he's also like kind of like playing pretty like pretty it's very dense yeah the information is very dense and, it, and i think that his playing has gotten actually a lot more precise over the years so like i remember we did this gig it was in portugal actually like a year ago where it was in a pretty dry space where you could really hear all the little details and i was just like oh fuck that's <laughs> so much it's so much to deal with and yeah. you know it's, it's nice that he says it about me but like it's almost like that um that old drug commercial from the nineties where it's like, I learned it from watching you. Right. <laughs> you know? All right. So, so as far as solo playing, I, w- I was checking back in with some of your solo records this morning and there's definitely, I mean, there's a huge arc. If you think about the the first solo record you made in, or it came out in like 2005, uh, more yeah. is more from there up to the recent stuff. There's a lot of ground covered. And do you think in terms of the record, do you think in terms of each solo record needs to be like, an utterly unique statement uh, to what came before it, or do you do you see it more as being like a no? Like the idea is bleeding just, in. Nah, I just sort of think like like if this isn't if this isn't just different, then I'm not then I'm not gonna fuck with it. I'm not gonna put it out. Yeah, I don't think of it as like uh, a like a story of like the last one was like this, so this one should be like this. And luckily, like I know that I put actually put out a, a lot of solo records, but none of them seem to me like i mean this one that there's this one that just came out from this gig i did in china like in the fall which i wouldn't have thought to put it out but they wanted to and so i said okay, i said okay and i it was a good set but other than that like each one has been fair for me like fairly um okay there isn't anything that i've done on record that's like this so i better i better get it on record before the shit changes too much mm-hmm. um that's really all it's about is just capturing what's happening during a given time. And then if I don't feel like anything's changed, then I won't, like I didn't make for as much solo playing that I, that I do. I didn't make one between 2008 and 2016. That's Not a long really. time. That's a long time. I, I sort of did. I did these weird releases that nobody right, knows right. about. Little EPs and stuff. But, <laughs> but that's a long time. Right. So I, I, cause I felt like it wasn't changing enough or I was just not concerned with it or something. Yeah, I think that's I think that's common, and I think it's natural yeah. to you know I I can I mean I I think this a lot of people might be able to relate to this when this quarantine lifts, I don't yeah. ever want to play solo again at least not <laughs> for like two years. <laughs> yeah, man, I don't I don't even know. Yeah, about that, but no. Oh, I mean, no, I I, I agree with you. I'm not even thinking of I'm not even thinking about it. It's yeah. too. The speculation about all this stuff is just like kind of annoying. I I, I think I like the uh, the rigor and the certainty of just total late March, early April quarantine. I think I really that's I really like that. This this new thing where it's like yeah you can go to Applebee's but like you can't have concerts and all this stuff. It's like I don't know. Yeah, I gotta say I don't like it. The first like four to six weeks, I was like pretty freaked out and like day to day I was very up and down. Yeah. But now yeah. that like I have some distance from it, like there was something kind of exciting about it. There was, yeah, it was exciting. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. just really not knowing what was going to happen. Like, I, I already feel like a weird nostalgia for it. Me too, man. When you couldn't, because it came in here, it's like, this is this is not a very dense city. And when everybody's inside, it's like a, a, a true ghost town. Like, yeah. I did a couple of, like, walks around where it's like, wow, there's no, like, there's nobody around. There's nothing happening. And that was kind of nice. Have you been doing a lot of reading and listening? Yeah, shitloads. I mean, I, I feel like I have uh, – I'm either really mismanaging my time or there's just too many things for me that I want to do in a given day. So right. I uh, 
Yeah, I mean, actually, I haven't really been practicing much the last week um, because I've been writing a bit and reading and um, trying to step up learning the Portuguese language, which is quite a challenge. And uh, yeah, and just and just researching and like checking and checking shit out. So yeah, what what records have you checked out that are uh, worth mentioning? Well, that's what that's what's so weird. It's like I knew you were going to ask me that, and I sort of can't think of even what they are. But they're not like. Um, let me just do this because this is whenever I just look at the recent stuff that I've been listening to. So it's all on your phone. So just, it's all on my phone. So here's here's a Depeche Mode record because I went I went through this whole. I just got into like eighty synthesizers, just like various synth synth oriented music. You know, really like, like what? Well, like over the holidays, I was really like checking out like um okay Kraftwerk, but also like tangerine dream there's a there's a weird band called tin tin doll not tim doll but tin doll like sort of hippie uh manuel manuel um gutshing you ever heard this guy's guitar no, player no. yeah like like kind of really gear oriented german and british like synth bands where it was just all about having all these synths everywhere all i stuff. had no idea I, that was something that would interest you I love the sounds, yeah, and I, and I actually just started, I wanted to learn more about, like, simp, like um, analog synthesis and stuff like that, so I was, like, kind of futzing around with, like, just checking out how that stuff works, and then also listening to music that was, like, all about the instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really fun band called Noi, N-E-U. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Classic, classic shit. Oh, it's, it's great, and their second record is just the first record, like, with different speeds, <laughs> you know, on the tunes, so, like, yeah, so I got super into that, and that just started to lead into other shit, so, like, um... Actually, I, I had a whole phase where I was listening to, like, I was late to this whole game of, I'll turn my iTunes off now just so I can talk, see you, but mm-hmm. this, this, I was late to this whole, this whole thing of, like, Vaporwave and basically all kinds of nostalgia-driven 80s and right. Man, it's, it's actually really dark in a way, like, the idea that this stuff exists. And then I found Soviet Wave. And so there's, like, there's I don't know Soviet anything about wave. this. You know about Vaporwave, right? I, yeah, kind of. I, I have okay. a sense of it's what old. it is. It's yeah. old now, but... Um, vaporwave. I mean, as a person who grew up in the '80s, like it, it hits that the sounds like you know, like super compressed snare and some mm-hmm. reverby synth playing a melody. It's like, oh yeah, it's like going to the beach in 1986. But the dark thing about it is that it's like the way that that I see so much nostalgia right now for like that time for like the '80s and '90s, and it makes me really sad. Like, it makes you sad. Even like I even see like free jazz albums where it's like these the cover is like some old faded picture of like people's parents or it's like, I'm just like, fuck like the nineties was so amazing. What are you talking about? Like the whole, the, the, I feel like this, this wanted to cuddle up in like, in like some recent decade that you remember as being nice. Cause, cause right now it's highly unstable. Yeah. And but also pe- people are just like, love to be infantilized too. Like there's something, it's like being hooked up to a feeding tube to like, think about, you know, Watching a, like a, a a crusty VHS tape of Tron, yeah. and yeah. you know just eating like fucking hot pockets or whatever. Yeah, yeah, no, I th- I think, but I think I mean it's it's really hard for me to not connect these musical trends with like the sort of larger cultural moment of like stagnation, boredom, fear, apathy, mm-hmm. all ro- all rolled into this kind of terrible little ball, you know. So mm-hmm. so with Soviet waves, because there's a there's a whole. Um, phenomenon of soviet nostalgia like uh, often people that are too young to even have grown up in that thing so there's soviet wave which is music that's made like vaporwave it's constructed to sound old like 80s old Mm -hmm. usually with these images that are like 
we were going to go to space and there's like a, like a cosmonaut and like stuff like this. I find that stuff to be a bit boring, but then there's also like massive compilations of like eighties synth pop, like from, you know, the Caucasus, like from these Soviet satellite countries, like Azerbaijan and stuff and, you know, Georgian pop. And there's a lot of interesting music. So I, I was checking out stuff like that. Even I, and then it kind of led to some weird, you know, the algorithm does strange things. So checking out weird jazz records from Azerbaijan and stuff like that. Yeah. Could these cats play? Uh, some of them, yes, yes and no. It's more like the style is interesting because mm-hmm. they're they're sort of doing like, I mean, I don't even know. It's it, it would take on a different. If you did it now, it would be some sort of like I'm embracing my identity as like an Azerbaijani jazz. But then it's just sort of like they're from this place. They're trying to filter in Kirby Hancock, but they're doing <laughs> these weird scales and like you know their information comes information came later. You know yeah. everything it was under this big delay. So. I find that stuff kind of interesting, but yeah. uh, but then in terms of listening, let me just go back. Um, I was checked, man. Actually, I've been going back to uh, the John Gibson stuff that you showed me because I'm working on this solo flute piece, and you're writing so it, or have, you're going to be playing flute? I'm, I'm no, I'm no, 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 hell no. I'm writing a. <laughs> so I back in December, I, I I had kind of a rehearsal for quarantine back in December, mm-hmm. and uh, meaning like I had this super down time nothing to do several weeks ahead of the holidays. So and I, of course I had the kind of working musicians freak out like, Oh my God, like no gigs. I'm my career's over. You know, it's like one week, one empty week in the calendar. It's like, ah, the whole world's forgotten about me. But then I got my, got my shit together and I was like, okay, why don't I take this opportunity to work on some, some composition? Cause that's actually something I never really had the time to do. So I did a workshop up in Porto and I met this flute player who was a, she was a student. Her name is Clara Salaru, and she, she was a student, but she, she's kind of a killer, like, new music player. So I was like, oh, wow, she's awesome. And I, I've never had any affinity for the flute at all. Like, I've often hated it, you know? Mm-hmm. But I was like, yeah, flute's kind of cool. It's sort of like this note machine. Like, it can kind of just do anything. And um, so I was like, maybe I'll just start writing something and see what happens. And so then it, it blossomed into this whole – the idea is this four-movement piece of, like, piccolo – regular C flute, alto flute, and bass flute. And so the piccolo movement is done. I have a recording of it. It's awesome. Really happy. The other, the C flute movement is um, pretty much done. And then I was like, oh man, the bass flute, like there's all these cliches with flute writing, like all the sort of like uh, fricative, like these vocal sounds, all the thud percussive shit. I was like, I don't want to do any of that stuff. Like that stuff's overused, I think. So, all right, notes and rhythms. Let's go with the flute. And uh, so far, so good. But then when I got to the bass flute, I was like, okay, I'm going to write a bass flute piece. I have kind of a concept in mind that has to do with, like, slow slow contemplation of material. And I was yeah. like, fuck, Gibson already did it. Like, every idea I have for the bass flute movement is basically a John Gibson piece. And so I'm just not – I'm just going to ride it out. I'm just going to, like, let it – let that influence just percolate and not worry about it, not write anything, and then – then in a while, see what I have. And somehow just become okay with the fact that he's in there somewhere? Yes, or abandon the idea completely. I yeah. don't really know. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. his shit, those, those, um, those solo saxophone and solo flute pieces are just like, I, I couldn't believe that I had never heard that stuff when you played it for me. And I also, I also can't believe that nobody really knows. It seems like people don't really know I about it. I was just about to say that like, 
even in the world of like experimental music, new music, underground music, he's not a household name by any means. But no. I mean, you really, as you, as you just illustrated, if you're doing anything with these instruments, like he kind of can't really escape his influence. And, you know, no. even if, if you just listen to fucking like the, you know, Philip Glass Ensemble recordings from the 70s, like that's him yeah. playing all that crazy, super articulate sax stuff. Right. I mean, he's yeah, on like, a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a solo saxophone piece. I think it's called Melody for Saxophone on one of these records. Mm -hmm. it's, it's all just these um, uh, just downward arpeggiations of like major seven chords in different keys. I don't know. He seems like he was into this idea of like permutation and like almost like not serial, but like the idea that you're um, – what's the word for it? Um, like Steve Reich, Philip Glass, not serial, but boring. No, uh... Like formulaic, or like the idea that you're exploring, like additive logic. Like I'm going to do right. this series of notes, and then add this one, and then we're going to add this one. And just have it be so this thing that's constantly like uh, uh, metamorphosizing. Yeah, yeah. So that idea, like he does it at, at, a, at a kind of a slow tempo. Yeah, and it's really, it's it's actually really cool. And like, I, I find it way more compelling to listen to, honestly. Especially, yeah. you know, I, uh, you know, as opposed to something like Philip Glass or Steve Reich, because it's a solo instrument and it's, you know, a solo instrument that I can kind of relate to because uh, in terms of how the sound is manufactured, I actually really like that I can hear more frailty in his music yeah. than in any, all that stuff. You know, it's pretty dense, so you don't really hear the musician. You, you can imagine that the musicians are struggling because it's this crazy music oh. that's like super repetitive, but yeah. Oh, you mean like... You mean like Philip Glass, John Cage, like or Philip Glass and Steve Reich and that, yeah. that kind of like thing. To, to yeah. me, like the music of John Gibson is just so, so, so much like infinitely more human. Um, yeah. And that's I think I definitely connect with that where that other stuff leaves me a little cold. Yeah. Well, also, like, I mean, this is not an original opinion at all, but like a lot of that Steve, early Steve Reich shit was so raw and so killer. I mean, it was like like the, the, the microphones just swinging across amplifiers. Yeah. Like. They were they were really cool, simple applications of these ideas, and it's almost like I I never really had I never listened to that much Steve Reich that I hated. You know, most most of the shit I've heard is like kind of the classic pieces, and I sort yeah. of enjoyed them, like Eighteen Musicians and the Phase stuff, and even the Counterpoint pieces are cool. But I think where this all went wrong was like, and getting back to what we were talking about in the beginning about like uh, like scenes and stuff is like when when minimalism became this kind of like not slick but more accessible like the kind of the idea of post-minimalism that it got it got fused with rock music or something mm -hmm. like all these ideas like and i used to see shows when i first moved to new york i'd go to like merkin hall and it'd be like some guy playing like a min minimalist guitar piece with like leather pants and it's like we're bringing rock minimalism to the concert hall man and i was just like this is so embarrassing <laughs> terrible <laughs> you know and also that's why that's why like this disease were i mean the Z's are were you know really dorky guys, but that's their 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 vibe as a band wasn't dorky. It was like super. It was cool. And like, I mean, it was you know I've talked about this with Charlie at length. Like you know, yeah. especially you know he, he'll he'll tell you like in retrospect, a lot of that was to subvert the rock scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like it was you know music like, fans and stuff. Like yeah, yeah you, you know music. you you want to be in a band that doesn't fucking practice. You want to be like you know you want to be able to play three chords and get on the bandstand. Well, here's what we're gonna do. Man, you know what's funny is, is that I actually ran into uh, – so I, I started this kind of experimental music school here like yeah. about a year ago. And so it meets every two – I mean before this, it met every two months. And uh, I try to get musicians from different – because it's very stratified here. Like uh, the scenes are separate and people don't really mix that much. 
So I was like, I want to get people to mix. I want to like challenge people, do, you know, have a group where we're going to play jazz, but then bring in someone on like homemade electronics or something, something like right. that. So I, I, uh, I did the last one that I did, there was a cellist and she was like, Oh, you know what? I actually, I hope we, we split a gig together in Philadelphia like 10 years ago. And I, I really remembered the gig because backstage, it was with Weasel and Mary. And I remember that backstage before the gig, I was just like being obnoxious and I was going on this rant about how I hate when like Brooklyn bands refer to rehearsal as practice, uh-huh. Like we have band practice. I was like, what the fuck is band practice? Like, what is it like middle school volleyball? Like, like, and, and some guy was like, Oh, so what are you, are you some, you sound like elitist. You think like practice is what you do like in a room by yourself with a metronome. And I was like, yeah, I do think that. <laughs> <laughs> and like rehearsal is when you get together. Like I was just, I was kind of just fucking with them, but like, I do think that I just thought it was so funny that like, I met this woman after like a decade that actually remembered, but I remember the gig for that, especially for that interaction. I remember the interaction is this kind of DIY guy. Cause you know, the, the DIY scene is where I kind of like incubated a lot of my stuff. Totally. Totally. Like, totally. In New York, you can't play a solo trumpet gig at a jazz club. <laughs> you know <what> I mean, <laughs> so, you know, I played like not, I don't, I wouldn't say this place is DIY, but like the cake shop or like, sure. by or whatever. Those places are absolutely DIY. Yeah, so. absolutely. I mean, you know, maybe a little bit elevated, but I mean, the, yeah. solo, the solo thing, too, and I've been learning this in quarantine, and it's become this, like, major thing for me. It's it's like baking in that the only way it becomes meaningful is with time and repetition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and, like, I've I've been making pizzas every day. I actually, when I get off the phone with you, I'm making yeah. – I'm delivering pies all over uh, uh, the, wow. lower, the Lower East Side. Oh, Wow. But I, it's I. The parallel to me has never been like more clear and direct. Yeah, you know, actually, um, Maya has got me really into. I've gotten really into Top Chef. I'm watching a lot of Top Chef. That's oh, the really? only show that I'm really watching. Okay. And um, I've had a lot of thoughts about. I mean, I, I, I love it. On especially like the recent seasons where it's a little bit less like dramatic in terms of the personalities and more just about like about cooking, cooking and like it's. I'm really enjoying it, but it, I've had I had one thought I've had about it is like in and I actually wanted to bring this up because you're like you know about like food and stuff and you're in that world a bit like in in Top Chef you have these people like the contestants like for this season are already these are like all stars these are people that have already been on it and they have restaurants and some of them are doing like really high level shit and like most of them right as far mm-hmm. as I can tell and what's what's funny about it is that like it's food so at some level. It has to like. I mean, it's nourishing. No one, no one eats this kind of food because it's nourishing, right? Like you're not, you're not hungry and go to a Michelin restaurant. Like right. oh, I'm starving, right? But it has to. It does have to taste good, right? That's just a blanket. Yeah. Doesn't matter if it's hard to make. And so there's like this reducibility to that, to people on that level with their medium of food. That like, okay, do whatever you want, but it does at some level have to just taste good. And something about. Um, I don't. It's fine if you didn't check it out, but I sent you this album, this uh, Horizons. Album. Yeah, I listened to it uh, this morning. Okay, so for me, for me personally, like other, I'm sure other people have different opinions. As far as me, like having made it, it's my most experimental record in 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 that I don't know what it is. I don't know what a lot of that shit is. Like it's not experimental in terms of it's the weirdest sounding. It's right. the, it's the most experimental in terms of like okay, I'm gonna have us all play a diatonic melody for three minutes in unison. I guess, you know, and so when you're making experimental music, which I don't use that term very much, when you make experimental music, it's like there's no reducibility. There's nobody that can tell you there's no sort of like blanket like, yeah, this shit works. This is like a vibe. This is 
Not really. You can only tell yourself that. You know, I, I, I'm, I kind of I don't know if I agree with that because especially so if you, if you start with the what you the comparison of like fine dining, yeah, yeah, and what you know a big part of enjoying those experiences, uh, especially I mean the restaurants. Well, I mean prior to quarantine, the restaurant scene in New York has gotten really intense, and yeah. it's largely about these really creative chefs doing really really interesting things and so if you Mm -hmm. you know if you have a palate if you have you know some experience with i can't believe i'm talking like this uh as if that's like something to be proud of is like yeah i've eaten (laughs) a lot of expensive food um you you begin to sort of pick apart the techniques and and the flavor combinations and like wow i never would have you know like there's uh the restaurant i work at there's this um side dish that that they do that's just it's beans right yeah. And every time you see a chef get this order of beans, they all do the exact same thing. They pick one up with their fingers yeah. and, and then eat it on its own and smile. And they, <laughs> they're completely appreciating the fact, uh, the flavor, obviously, but the texture, yeah. the way it's like firm and then just yeah. super creamy on the inside. And so, you know, I think with music, like as, as unusual as this record Horizons is, you can grab on even if you you're like I don't know what the fuck is going on but like the playing is like super all the fundamentals are clearly like intact okay, you're talking about the, the, the craft element like the, the playing of the instruments yeah but. so I think I mean for me anyway even if I don't really know what's going on with music like that to me is like a, a signifier of like alright I, I don't know how I feel about this yet but like these guys you're are right, playing you're right you're right Okay, I, didn't, I actually didn't think about that. I was sort of more talking about just the pure aesthetics, if, if that's possible to really say. But maybe that's not possible to to really talk about it like that. I mean, maybe maybe one of the things that pokes a hole in my argument in a way is that playing a musical instrument, there there always is there's this craft element that's always tied to it, no matter how weird it is. And if audiences or if listeners can, even someone like Barry Guy or something, when he improvises or Evan, it's super weird, mm-hmm. but something about their command of the instrument, it kind of like extends a hand of it. People trust them when they play maybe a bit more than like other experimental or whatever, improvising musicians only maybe only because they seem like they know what the fuck they're doing. Right. You know, I mean, so, I think, I think across the board, again, whether we're talking about music or food, the concept of clarity is yeah. lost on no one. And sometimes like, mm. I, so if if I if I like you know zoom out a little bit and I, I listen to your record Horizons and I could make like yeah. a very like sort of uh, unastute observation of it. Wow, it's really dense music. There seems to be like things just happening constantly, changes and like I I could say the same thing about this concert I went to last summer at the Hollywood Bowl that was a premiere of a new John Adams piece. Uh huh. And the second this piece started, I was fucking spitting up in my mouth with just how, like, just, I mean, just absolute, absolute corny. Yeah. Like, I mean, it was a 20-minute piece. There's a piano concerto called, um, God, it was the, it was a, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Tunes? Uh-huh. Oh, and, no. I mean, you can kind of imagine from there where that would go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. I know for me, it's like, all right, so I'll listen to some contemporary music, and I, I'm expecting to listen to a piece of music that's 20 minutes long. I'm expecting virtuosity. I'm expect, expecting uh, complexity. Straight away, I'm yeah. going to be drawn towards something like your record where it's like, all right, this is fucked up, and like I think this person might be crazy versus yeah. like Yuja Woon or whatever her name is playing like blues vamps. Yeah, right, right, right. You know, with, or with orchestral, you know, pointillism. It was just, ugh. Yeah, but you like that feeling of being confounded. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's exciting. 
Yeah, for and, me too. And I like hearing like, okay, I kind of, yeah, I think I know where, I, th- I think I know what Peter's concept here is, you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then being like surprised that I was wrong or. Right. Yeah. No, I thought, I mean, another thing that happened, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, one reaction that I've gotten just in my life to, to what I do with music is like, and sometimes it comes from a place of support, which is like people that want people that look at what I do and they were like, you know, more people would like it if, I mean, it's, we've all thought about these issues for our whole lives. Like sure. more people would like what we did if, if you did blah, 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 if you put a beat under it or if you, if it was a little bit less dense or we played tunes, people recognize all that stuff. And there's this thing of like, um, oh, okay, well, I don't get this. It makes me feel stupid and I, it's like too much to handle. So I don't like it. Some, some, people like that feeling and actually i think one of the problems with music is that i don't like to talk about like the culture like we don't live in a like homogenous unified culture whatever it seems to me that like music isn't necessarily given that it's not extended that import like that even like a person like that reads like whatever like they'll see oprah book club has some like corn mccarthy novel on it or something or like Bologna 2666 some hardcore shit yeah those books those books kind of pop through the texture into like popular life absolutely you know and when you read a book like that when you read like Blood Meridian you don't you don't like it like it doesn't exist on this binary of like or dislike it's an experience and like you have to struggle with a lot of the with with meaning and also just the terrible feelings and all this stuff Mm -hmm. and then you finish the book and you're like fuck like whatever whatever you think of it it's not like I didn't understand this, so it's bad. So it must be bad. And I think with music, there is this automatic assumption that, like, if I don't get what's going on, then there must be something wrong with it. <laughs> you know, not something wrong with me. Right. And uh, and I, I I'm I'm hostile to that. I'm totally hostile to that idea. You totally. Know, I, don't think I mean, we, I, I don't think I don't think we should like let you know. I don't want to debase music like in that in that way. Um, which I know I, that sounds elitist, but I mean, whatever. I freak, you know, my, my response when I feel, I, I, I guess my version of that for me is like, I'm just not in the mood to listen to that right now. And that could be yeah, for yeah. something like, you know, I, I can listen to, you know, an Elie and Radik piece that's an hour long. And when I finish it, I'm like, God, that was an amazing experience. That was right. the frequency with which I want to sit down and listen to that is like, no, yeah, it's pretty rare. Yeah, yeah. Totally, same totally, thing yeah. with like a Terrence Malick film. It's like you finish, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you finish uh, uh, Days of Heaven. And you're like, that was fucking amazing. I don't ever want to see it again. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me, so let me ask. I'm going to look at some of these questions. Some of these people all did right. actually put some some time and thought into their questions. <laughs> okay. So we're gonna we're yeah, gonna have to all of you on Instagram, guys. What's up? Next time you've got to proofread or something jesus all right so this is uh from my buddy juan and he asks i've read a few interviews in which peter evans talks about the notion of quote unquote creating devices that allow him to create yeah i wonder if he could give an example of how one could begin exploring this concept in the instrumental practice thank you um i mean i kind of i kind of talked about it already like in terms of like the kind of rhythmic stuff I'm practicing, but it, it's basically the, the idea that like you are, it's not necessarily creating things that create. You're just, you're just internalizing at least the way I would put it for an instrumentalist or for myself is that you're, I'm internalizing some kind of relationship. I'm not internalizing a thing. I'm internalizing a relationship. So like, let's say I'm internalizing, you know, 
a really ba- three over two, just the rhythm of three over two. I'm trying to yeah. get three over two kind of in my blood. So what I would do is I would explore that relationship in various ways and try to get comfortable enough with it so I don't feel like I'm consciously thinking about it when I'm doing it so that I can improvise. Right. Right. So I, I think it's actually like not that different from maybe the way a jazz musician would, would learn chord changes for, for a tune. Like you learn all the things you are to the point that you are the chain that the chord changes are just sort of like a, uh, um, a stepping stone into these various possibilities. It's not really a thing. It's just like a, a um, not even a starting point. It's, it's, um, it's like a, like a germ that can multiply and create all this different stuff. So I, I just sort of like in my practice, what I do is instead of, I do practice chord sequences and blah, blah, blah. But in terms of like my own music, I just, instead of, I, I try to find my own uh, things that create, my own relationship that I find interesting, and then think, think just kind of go to town on them. But nobody can really tell you what those things are. You have to just find them, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. They can be simple. They can be super simple. Um, and, I, and I found that also that usually every, everything tends to lead to something else, you know? If you, if you kind of go deep on something for a bit, Chance, and especially if you test it out in, in a concert, because for me, tons of times, like I'll work on something for a long time and then it'll kind of come out in a concert in a way that I didn't expect, which that's the goal, right? That you that it just sort of the, seeps its way in? Not just that, but that you, the, the thing that you think you know propels you into this new space where you actually don't know what the fuck is going on at all. Like that, I, I'm definitely not the only, I'm not the only improviser to describe like improvisation is kind of fundamentally that like you're basically you're like compiling experience and knowledge so that you can go into the unknown and not completely fall on your face yeah. and hopefully hopefully even go further into the forest you know right yeah right and so these devices kind of help you to do that yeah 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 that's pretty much it all right uh yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna ask you uh this is a question from callum yeah. He says, uh, you've mentioned collage in previous episodes of this podcast in reference to mostly other people do the killing. Collage is also a feature I hear in different parts of your solo work and as a composer. I was wondering if you could talk more about your philosophy behind this. Is juxtaposition of ideas and sounds an aesthetic choice, maybe taken from modern visual or art disciplines? Is it, sorry, this is a long question. Is it the logical yeah. uh, conclusion of an improvising mind Overfull with ideas. That could be it. Uh, oh boy! Uh, and how do you square that with the structural logic of other aspects of your practice, like the factories concept you've talked about on the podcast before? <laughs> um, no, I don't. No, man, I don't know. I don't. I, I would never use the word collage. I mean, um, yeah, I, that 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 word doesn't really enter in my, into my thing at all. I mean, maybe juxtaposition or. I mean, I feel like with 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 most of the other people do the killing. I think where we got into trouble a bit was in terms of like perception. Was at least for me, I never really looked at it as collage. I more I more looked at it as like maybe playing with expectation. Like mm-hmm. a tune that goes like this often does not end up going in this way, and so like let's do that, you know, like that kind of thing. That 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 approach kind of was hardwired into how the band worked. Um, but which I, I relate to that, but um, in terms of like things fitting things that are, I don't know, uh, d- 
distinct going next to each other. I don't necessarily think that's, I wouldn't necessarily go so far as it's collage. I've always, you know, and you're like a really good case uh, of, of this or a good example. I kind of think more about like kaleidoscope and the, you know, if I think about, you know, the stuff you do like with ice interpreting, you know, contemporary composition, I can hear that in the solo improvisations. And then I can hear the stuff you do in the solo improvisation will seep its way into a solo you'll play with like a jazz quartet. Yeah. And that to me makes the music as a listener much more compelling. Um, certainly, you know, more compelling than other, you know, there's other musicians and composers who don't quite seamlessly uh, integrate these things. They kind of more sit like side by side in opposition yeah, to one yeah, another. Yeah. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's more of a thing about like maybe about style, I mean style or something. But I think I like I I enjoy. We're talking about this thing of like okay, I'm not going to compare it to like how you feel after a Radig or Terrence Malick experience, but the feeling of having to as a as just as a uh, perceiver or listener of art and music and just kind of stuff in life, the idea that you are. Um, confronted with maybe a bit more information or detail than you're really able to take in at first sitting. I like that feeling. I think it's exciting. I think it's, I think it's fun. I think it's, it can be really deep. And so as a person that's making stuff, I mean, these kinds of questions are hard because it's not, I don't think any real artist is like, like in a laboratory being like, I want to make this effect. So then I will do these things. Like right. It's, it's right. intuitive. And then you find these bullshit ways to back it up, you know, and then you can get a job teaching somewhere. So, so for me, it's like, I feel like for me, it's like, I, I actually just like that sensation. And I, um, that particular sensation of like saturation of detail of, um, of being a bit overwhelmed and mm -hmm. like having to find your way through it. And then maybe having to re repeat the experience a few times to make sense of it. Like that's what drew me to, to a lot of music in the very first place. You know, when yeah. I was a kid, hearing, I was, there's certain shit that I heard where I was like, I don't even know if I like this, but it's fucking like so just foggy and crazy. And like, I, I want to just go back for more. And then it's almost like this kind of Stockholm syndrome where it's like, oh my God, like interstellar <laughs> space is my favorite, interstellar space is my favorite music. But it's not, it's not Stockholm syndrome because you're actually, like you're talking about, you're going, you're doing the work as a listener to slowly kind of peel away what seems like, let's say for interstellar space. Like when I, I remember when I first heard that record, it sounded like noise to me. And also the um, the reputation that record had uh, didn't help because it was like, oh, yeah, it's Coltrane. It's like a super free. It's like super crazy. It's like he's basically playing like Giant Steps Harmony at like light speed. <laughs> That's basically uh, what's going on. It's on an hour record. of him striving for excellence and just constantly picking himself back up. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, but it's very it's very pitch oriented, you know, yeah. and um, and I, I couldn't hear that at the time because I was fucking 13 years old. So, you know, whatever. But. I just kept going back and back and back. And so that, that must've made an impact on me. Cause that's a, if I can, if I can give somebody that experience, that would be really, you know, meaningful to me to do. So the idea of like trying to like, and I, I don't only want to make dense music or only whatever difficult music or something, but there is something uh, in there that's more, even, even like this talk about like what to practice and like why, like why practice these things? Like, I think that again, it's not like speed and density are the only ways, obviously, but I think there is a, if you're talking about like how to maintain that level as an improviser or of, of you're barely on the cusp of what you're able to really control. 
you need to actually like the guy that the Hungarian the psychologist that talked about you know the flow state. One of the one of the main kind of criterion for maintaining that state is that you have to be challenged. Mm-hmm. If it's too easy or too hard, you're going to just zone out and not yep. do it. But if you can maintain this equilibrium of like challenge and ability and be able to kind of hang there, um, then you can stay in that space. And staying in that space is the most important thing. It's mo- it's more important than the shit even sounding good. Mm-hmm. And and so like a lot of the stuff that I find myself practicing and doing and putting into the music, it's not just like complex or saturated for the sake. It's actually I need to do that for my own sort of aesthetic and spiritual well-being so that the music ticks in a certain way. You know, and I've even been thinking about like, you know, it's it's pretty we all talk about like when when musicians um get older, they've done let's say they they establish themselves doing one thing and then all of a sudden they're 70 and they're doing something that seems really weird. I think that a lot of it is like that person is just trying to maintain their thing. And they're making they're making decisions that to an outside observer just seem totally off the wall or, or even bad, but they're doing what they need to do to stay to stay in the zone, you know? And you can't yeah. maybe that's one of these irreducible things. Like nobody can tell them that that's wrong. Even if the music doesn't work or whatever, they're just doing it so they can like stay in that place of like, Oh, I don't really know what's going on. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So that's, that's important to me. Uh, Actually, I just want, I'm going to, this is actually going to lead really good into really well into a question that someone else asked, but do you just real quick, like when you think about like miles doing time after time in like (laughs) in the late eighties, were people cringing as hard at the time as they do now? I was thinking about that the other day. Like, Miles Davis was such a weird dude. Like, because it's not as if he did. So he was, I just think maybe, you know, the 20th century could only crap out a few people like that. And he was one of them. Like, somehow he was a super, seems like a super restless guy. Like, he just keeps on, he keeps on changing. He keeps on, like, doing new stuff. And then but none of it was really like um it's it almost seemed like the the flirtations he had with like mega stardom like cuz you know people in the in the 50s it seemed like he was he was this figure where he was he was like hanging out with Ava Gardner and Marlon yeah. Brando yeah, he was famous. and he was like yeah. he was really super famous as like a as like a he was an icon of like style and all this stuff and uh, the, and the music kind of went with that but then one thing that's been the one thing that's interesting is like talking to people that were kind of around that time, like in the '60s. Like I know I've known t- I know tons of musicians that are like baby boomer generation that could have gone see Miles in the '60s when he had the band like with Tony Williams and Wayne, and they just didn't go because they were like, ah, I think that's some old shit. They're wearing suits and stuff, and it's like whatever. I want to go see Archie Shepp or Ornette or. Mm-hmm. So the idea that at that at that point Miles was famous enough to do whatever he wanted, but that maybe. Maybe he, he just was considered to be like this kind of old hat guy. That's funny. And then and then all of a sudden he's playing like outdoor, like he's playing the Isle of Wight and these sort of like Woodstock type festivals with like, you know, leather pants and stuff. Everyone's got bandanas on and all the shit. So that music, like it's like there was this big retrospective about a, a Bitches Brew recently. And Steve Bernstein was talking about how like that was just a record that everybody had. Bitches Brew just was a record that everybody had. He compared it to Crosby, Stills, and Nash. It was like it doesn't sound like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, right. but like it's just that record. Like everyone just has it. Yeah, and so its impact that music, was that wide. Yeah, but the music's really weird. You it's know, dark. It's scary. It's dark and scary. Then there was On the Corner, which was like his attempt to like connect with like 
young black listeners. I don't think that worked at all. Right. You know, I think that record at the time was a flop, but it turns out it was super influential, like way ahead of its time. And then all of a sudden he's playing time after time and like, um, Oh, he's doing a uh, he did a Michael Jackson tune also. I forget which one. Human Nature, I think. Yeah, he did Human Nature. Yeah. So I don't know what I don't know what to make of any of that. But you know, I, I I grew up on '80s Miles is like one of the things that got me into music because my parents were like casual jazz fans and had the CDs lying around. So I heard a lot of that stuff kind of before I heard anything else. Sure. And I don't go back and listen to it and think like, oh, this is so awesome. Like a lot of it, I'm like, oh, this sucks. And then every once in a while, I'll see some like some like live shit where it's it's more like what you'd expect from him like there'll be these super long solos from his side men and stuff like he even had a thing where he would like he would write the name of the musicians and then hold them up like at a gig like a piece of paper it would be like kenny garrett and he hold up this piece of paper <laughs> like Wait, super weird for people to applaud or for to, yeah to... yeah so like marcus miller would take some crazy bass solo and then he'd hold up a sign that says marcus what? miller that is out there clapping. he was super out i mean so I don't know what to make of it. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, my parents saw him a couple times in the eighties hmm. and it's funny. Cause like that idea of like, we saw this, the, this idea of experience, like, Oh yeah. Like we saw this thing and it was like super crazy and overwhelming. That's how they describe seeing eighties miles. They don't describe it as like cheesy or anything. They were like, okay. Like my mom says that the second time they saw him was at some, like a fairly small club in, Bo- in Boston he had a he had a like a snakeskin suit with a big crescent moon like as a cape like on the back and he had his back to the audience the whole time and was just kind of pointing and directing she said the show was like three hours long with no breaks and there was these super super long solos and it was just super crazy <laughs> so that doesn't really go together with this thing of like oh he was kind of selling out and like, right yeah yeah i think he yeah. i think he was just like a dark wizard I think, yeah, he just was a weird dude and was just restless and was just trying stuff. Yeah. And maybe age just got the best of him because, like, at a certain point, it's like you're making, like, he made, he made that, um, like, a hip-hop record before he died. Right. So, but here's the thing, man. It's like he made this album. Um, it's not the one with rappers. It's a, it's a different one called You're Under Arrest, and it's, it has all these, like, police brutality shit on it. And there's even a whole, like, um, sequence where he's he's getting arrested i think sting has a cameo on it like what? A, it's like a speaking cameo and the cover of the record is miles davis just holding a fucking machine gun what yeah i've yeah, got the record's under, called you're under arrest yeah it's, it's a it's a famous record on like on like sony or warner brothers i've never heard of this and the cover is him like in a trench coat and a hat holding a fucking like tommy gun or something that's so funny i wonder <laughs> if like uh like you, you, you've seen this with like uh, with Bob Dylan, ways where there's like a period where like people universally talk shit. You know, like bo- people yeah, have yeah. always universally talk shit about uh, Bob Dylan in the '80s, and yeah, now yeah, yeah. now of course all the hipsters are like, oh yeah, man, Oh Mercy's always been my favorite Dylan record. Is that when he became super Christian for a few years or something? And then kind of came back out of it, yeah. But those records have uh, always been incredible, and you know you can't mm. judge, you know, like a record like Empire Burlesque. Mm. Yes, it sounds like it was made in the '80s. Yeah, the music is fucking timeless. It's amazing. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. Yes, it sounds like it was recorded when it was recorded. But it's just funny to me that at some point all the hipsters decide like, "Oh no, that's I've always been into that," you know, or just oh, like yeah, yeah. It, it seemed like a year or two ago, like all of a sudden everyone had heard Alice Coltrane for the first time. That actually really part of it really I mean part of it's great that like she was getting some press and and like people know who she is but I was a bit annoyed in a way that like the the actual cuz people I mean 
people don't really give a shit about actual. I don't. I don't want to say there's like real music. What I, I feel like the actual like listening of of the actual music, somehow somehow is like the last thing people give a shit about. So like, when, when the um, the box set of her, she had this. She had all these recordings that she had of like these of like these hymns and stuff, right? Right. And I heard some of this. I had I, I, maybe like five or six years ago. Um, before it was cool or whatever, I, I was in some no man. I was in some I was in some bar in Brooklyn. It was an, it was like a Austrian beer bar on Fifth Avenue, and this guy was playing um, World Galaxy, which is like there was Alice Coltrane. She had, she had moved to California, and she was given this like big budget to make these records for Warner Brothers. So she had a whole orchestra like improvise on top of the Rite of Spring. There's like Frank Lowe was on that record, I think, and there's like. There's a whole Hari Krishna like tune where it's like these cool grooves and like Fender Rhodes soloing. It's like a super crazy record. Yeah, it almost yeah. sounds. It almost sounds like. I mean, it's it's super LA. I mean, it's a super LA type of record. It's great. Like I never really liked those um, Impulse records. I don't think they're great. Like except for the one where um, all the strings are on it. Uh, oh, I forget. Uh, Universal Consciousness, I think it's called, something mm-hmm. like that. That's that's a killer. But they're sort of zampy ones. I'm sort of like, eh, whatever. And then, and then you know, this, the, the, her her the group that was at the ashram started doing these tours and singing all the stuff and all that. And yeah, it's it's a it's a trend thing. It's it's cool to like drum up attention for someone like that. But I don't know. I'm kind of non I'm nonplussed by that kind of by that sort of thing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Sam wants to ask you, and I had to I had to go in and look this up. He's referring to um, the record Lifeblood, a solo record that you made like four or five years ago. Yeah. Uh, he says, "Could you talk about the harmonic approach that you that you use in the three night solo recordings?" Uh, it's super specific. It's like no, I don't. I mean, I don't go into I don't go into uh, into improvisations with that kind of thought in mind like i'm going to use this system or something like that so i'm sorry it's a, it's a very disappointing answer but whatever harmonic whatever knowledge i have of harmony and then melody like when i go into these when i go into these situations and improvise um it's it's i you know you go in with it with whatever you've put in your body and then that's what yeah. comes out they, and then you then you make kind of informed decisions during the improvisation using whatever body of knowledge you have and intuition and all these things, it's hard to describe. It's not, those types of pieces are not the types of pieces that have like a system or something, which maybe like, I think maybe I would, I would, I would never like drum up a system just to have an answer to a question like this. But I think over the years I've gotten a lot more comfortable just saying that it's like, yeah. not everything, not everything is a system that you can just like take and then just, do you know what i mean when when you're accessing that musical intuition uh and is it really just a matter of like moment to moment letting the thing transform sort of some subconsciously no i mean i think if i had to really get like analytical about it i think with these from what i remember about these specific pieces um you know i'm obviously interested in like permutation and the idea of taking shapes and moving them around so that's like one type of let's say that's one type of transformation that's not really it's not really harmonic it's more like i guess it's more like transforming cells of melody and cells of intervals around the horn so that's one thing and then another thing um which is not really it's kind of a non-system is uh 
this idea of like sort of informed atonality. Like I, 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 uh, I, I got this book out of my high school library. I don't know why it was there. It was a book about Webern from like the sixties. Huh. It was really small. It was like one of those books where like the first, it's like 75 pages of text and then 75 pages of like references. And I wish I still had it. I think I stole it from the library and never returned it, but I don't know where it is now. And, um, there was all this stuff in the book that had this big impact on me that I don't even know if it's true or not. And so there's two things. One, which is just kind of a cool anecdote, was that because you know Vaporin was accidentally mur- like murdered, right? Like by a U.S. soldier. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he was like in Germany or Austria, and like the story was that he like he should have evacuated. He shouldn't have been there. He well, I don't think he was a big time Nazi sympathizer, but I'm not sure. I think he was hiding. I think he was hiding out. I think he was basically an academic who just wanted to write atonal music. Was kind of just like, all right, I'll just live with this. Mm-hmm. The story is that he was smoking a cigarette, and some soldier, some fucking sniper, just saw like the glow and just just took him out. <laughs> it's not funny. I don't know why I'm laughing, but <laughs> dude, you can't you can't control it. Like it's fun. It's funny. And so, but anyway, there is, so there's an anecdote in that book. I don't. So this is the part. I don't know. This is just whatever. Some anecdote that some guy visited him like pretty soon before he died and there was this like he was like hey vabern man what are you working on and he's like my next piece it's gonna be amazing and he's like well what is it and he points to this like like a chart like on a table and he's like oh cool so is that the, like the score he's like no no that's the piece it's the chart is that's the piece <laughs> he's like oh my god <laughs> like the idea that the idea that vabern was going so far into this idea this music is just about these abstract relationships right. I don't. Even, I don't know if the anecdote is true because Webern's music is like sensuous and always actually sounds good, and it's like he was really careful to like to notate good sounds. Like he was the one that brought a lot of these things. Like I mean, that, that could that certainly like be considered, you know, a comment on academia, which is, you know, seemingly a lot of composers in academia feel that way about music. Like they don't need to hear it. They don't need to hear yeah, it realized yeah, yeah. in concert. They're you know, yeah. fucking sign Our, the score and we'll start the new one. Yeah, yeah, that can be a vibe, but. But the thing I was going to say is that there's another um, passage in this book that talks about him and Webern, him and him and Baird, the students of Schoenberg, and how the way they understood the twelve tone technique was that. So Schoenberg was like this super advanced romantic tonal kind of tonal and post tonal composer, who then started to like go into this area of like free atonal writing. So the way they were. The, it's not really a quote. It's more like this author is talking about how these guys thought, which might not even be true, but whatever, it influenced me. So this idea of like, this is a real term, this idea of complementary harmony. So the idea that it's like, Webern is writing this shit that's pre-12 tone, and it's like, well, if you repeat the notes too soon that you already use, it just doesn't sound right. Just as a, just as a melody, it just doesn't sound good hmm. to have these kind of like flowing atonal melodies if you bring back notes too soon. So then, the next logical the next logical step is just don't reuse a note until you've used all twelve. And so, basically, what this book is arguing is like, is that twelve tone technique was kind of a, an organic outgrowth of a really kind of aural way of listening to atonal music. That so, like a, a, an example of complementary harmony would be like one of these guys is writing a leader, like a song for voice and piano. And so, the let's say the the melody hits like E and F sharp and C those notes would be nowhere in the piano chords. Just It's super simple, mm-hmm. just to create this, this balance and this sense. And like that idea um, had an impact on me. I, th- I think, I, I, think I, I try to improvise like that a little bit, yeah. where like you can create melodies that are, that are actually tonal, 
But then if you're going to keep moving through like a free chromatic space, you don't want to get too tied up in any specific one unless you are looking to do that. You know, if you want to keep shit moving around, you need to kind of like um, hit the chromatic field somehow more or less equally um, to create this sense of like, yeah, this kind of free atonal sense. That's that's kind of a harmonic concept. I mean, it's kind of a non-concept in a way, but but I, I think in practical terms, it, it kind of helps me to think in, like, in that yeah, way. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I, and I think it's really effective too. And it's a good way to sort of like, I, I think that's actually a really good way to for people that have found some of that music to be a little too dense. It's like a really nice entry point just to sort of think about it yeah. starting there. I love that music, man. The pre pre twelve tone atonal like second Viennese school music. It's so bizarre. Just anxious and just so. Oh my god, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah, I always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, right, right. Book of the Hanging Gardens. I don't know if you were into that piece. What is it? It's called the Book of the Hanging Gardens. It's a Schoenberg uh, song cycle that's like in this kind of free free atonal. I think people have found like it's their structure in in it like to the intervals and how it um, goes together and stuff, but it's not twelve tone. And it's um, these super intense poems, um, expressionist poems that are really short, and these really short, really intense little songs. And uh, yeah, it's great, great stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm gonna put these questions aside because I think for the yeah, most yeah. part, generally, we got to all of them. I, and we'll wrap it up. But before we do, can you? So you get, you sent me this record called Horizons, which is you, Maz Swift, Levy, Loren- Levy Lorenzo, and Ron Stabinski. Ronnie boy, yeah. Ronnie boy, yeah. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's very unusual. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's all through composed. It seemed like it was all through composed. Uh, no, I mean that's no. what's weird about it. There's there's there are parts that are through composed, and there's other parts that aren't. It's a it's a big it's the biggest mix that I think I've had. Like the last piece, there's like a duo for violin and electric piano, and that's through composed. There's there's like Maz kind of messes around a little bit, but it's it's essentially through composed. Yeah. Yeah. When is that coming out? I think I'm gonna. Re- I mean, now it's all about timing the shit with these yeah. band camp holidays. So. It really is, right? Well, it is. So I think that I think I'm gonna make vinyl for this one, and in order to do to start that machine needs time. So I think I'm going to release it in August and let the let the band camp holiday go by. Maybe do like a pre order thing on like July because yeah. they, they've already announced when they're doing these things. So um, so I'll I'll see. I, I can't you know. I have to just let it breathe. There's no. We were supposed to do like a whole tour in September and like all this shit that's now not happening. So I, I just realized it's so funny. Like this is the time in any sort of interview where you'd be like, "All right, so what do you have next? What do you? Uh, when's the band going out on the road or whatever?" And it's literally no one's got anything planned. I know. I mean, I have. Um, I'm extremely lucky that I have an actual. I'm, I I think I can announce this. I won't say too much because I don't know. Yeah. I have an actual real gig happening here at a real place in july <laughs> but it's what? outside it's at an outdoor amphitheater and with like we're super reduced capacity in the audience is it a gig um, that would normally take place in august it's a gig that was going to happen anyway and okay. they're just modifying some aspects of it and i shouldn't say much more because i don't think there's any press about it and you right. never know these days maybe it could cancel i have no idea but it's it's like happening. I'm pretty sure. So, That's great. Yeah. So I'm doing that. But um, and it's kind of an, it's actually kind of an outgrowth of my uh, my school, my little experimental music school here, um, <laughs> which has been pretty fun. And then other than that, it's like records and stuff. Yeah. You know? How funny would it be if like 
you know, after months of everyone being locked inside, the very first yeah. improvised music concerts happen and still no one shows up. I mean, it's so funny. <laughs> I mean, when when people started talking about like, well, we can't have gatherings of 50 people or 100 people or more. I was just like, OK, so is my tour still scheduled then? I mean, I don't understand. It's a problem, you know. So, yeah, man, I don't. I have no idea. I mean, yeah, venues that fit a hundred people—that's a lot of venues. I mean, yeah. So I don't. I don't know. I mean, I'm. I'm happy just working on this stuff. I mean, I, I, in terms of like what's coming up next, it's like, I think that I got really lucky. Just like you, I got lucky by having records in the can, like mm-hmm. professionally done records in the can already. And then, um, my, you know, I'm dipping my toe into this composed composer shit, and like, you know, I wrote this. I wrote this like four minute piece for piccolo flute. I got a great performance. I got a recording. I'm happy with it. Like, yeah. wow. I was, I've been thinking to myself, like, maybe I should just like, while I'm here and have the time, like to do that, like, you know, try to write some pieces and, and get some performances, get to at least get some recordings and, and all I mean, that. So. You're, you're literally like stuck in an attic at a desk with a keyboard. <laughs> like what else should you be I, doing? Man, honestly, I love it. I love, this is my favorite thing. One of my absolute favorite things is to be at my desk with, books and paper and i was i've been thinking about this over the last few years it's like like i got in trouble like when i was a little kid i got in trouble i was like goof off and whatever i was trying to be funny and shit and like you know you get sent to like the principal's office that's that sucks you know one likes that you know the whole class like ooh, you know but there'd be things of like there there was a there was times where it's like all right like you know you fucked up so go sit over there for like an hour and at the front it's you know you're you're socialized at that time to think like that it's bad but I'm just like, oh my god! Knowing what I know now as an adult, like you're t- telling me that I can just go sit by myself for an hour. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to talk to anybody. You know, like that's amazing. Like, I mean, I kinda, where, do it, I, where it, do I sign up? It's funny because I agree. I completely <laughs> hear and agree with you. I I still have this memory, and I, when I think back on it, I'm like, oh, this is how this is the exact moment where people's lives like potentially take a turn for the worse. I yeah. remember. I got I got in trouble in high school. I was in like tenth grade. I got sent to in school suspension. Yeah, and I was like totally freaked out. I was like, oh fuck, you know, like this is really terrible, and my mom's gonna kill me and all this stuff. And I remember showing up. All external though, yeah. Yeah, but I remember the first day in school suspension. I looked at all the cats that were in there, and I was like, dude, this is the A team. Like it was literally just two days of like cutting up with the funniest, most fucked up people in school. The most fun people, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And there was this inside of me. I still remember being like. I, I cannot get too comfortable here because this is like way preferable to just like sitting in class. Yeah, I know, man. I mean, you know, I actually remember really well the last time we did one of these and it was the live, the live mm-hmm. thing at Arete. And I was right. I think the next day or like a couple of days later, I was supposed to go to teach at Banff. And we had this whole conversation about teaching and like right. creativity and something that I really thought about because I've been teaching. I really do. I don't have a teaching job. For now, I like it like that. I mean, maybe right now it would be kind of cool to have a salary, but I do a, a, I do a shitload of fly-by-night teaching. Like I'll mm-hmm. float into some school and be there for a day or two or even a few hours or whatever. And then, then of course, have these, you know, like the, the ice at Banff thing went on for three. I did that for three years. And it's complicated because, like, you want, like, good students. Like, you want people that are interested in the subject matter, but – you almost don't want too many students that are too good. Like you sort of need something to sculpt. Yeah. It's like when I, when I think about like, 
part of part of what it's like to be in a institution and to do creative stuff is I think part of the idea is that you're kind of going against something. You're like going off on the side and doing your own shit or mm-hmm. you're blatantly ignoring what people are telling you to do or all that kind of stuff, which for a teacher that makes for kind of a pain in the ass experience. But it's like, that is kind of part of the, yeah, that's, that has to be part of the, uh, there used to be like the a dynamic. subversive nature to it. Yeah. There has to be, that has to be part of the dynamic. I, th- I think, I mean, and I've seen what happens when there's none of that and it's, it can it actually, I think kind of goes off the rails, you know, mm-hmm. in a, in a way. Um, so I don't know. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, if I could have students, that's the thing. I would never do that. The idea of me sending a student, like a college age student, to like alone time or something. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it sounds so insane. Well, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll wrap it up. But I've I've heard um, stories, and again, I'm probably t- I mean, I'm probably talking out of turn because I haven't heard yeah. this firsthand. But yeah. I've heard, I've heard about Fred Sherry um, being he's, that that he's incredibly intolerant of people not fulfilling their end of the student teacher relationship to the point of like you screw up once or twice and he's like, our relationship's terminated. Yeah. It's, it's really tough. I mean, I think that that, that works when you, that, that can just work if you establish it, you know, as, as if also if you have the kind of like, if you can kind of develop the gravitas to do that. Yeah. If you work in a school where I'm not saying this about Fred, I'm just saying as a person, I, I know, I know people that teach like that. If you have the safety of a school where you can kind of act like that, I mean, I'm, it's, it's not even necessarily criticism, but like here, shit does not start on time. It's just not, it's not part right. of how people do things. So like when I do my, my, my little school thing I do is called song, song crescent. It means like a growing sound or sound growth right. or something. So the way it works is we have every two months, I like, I basically, it's all word of mouth, get these students, usually like seven, I get a guest teacher that's somebody from the scene here, some one of the scenes. Um, and we have like a four to six hour rehearsal on Sunday. And then we, he, you ever meet this guy named Kelzo? He was a, he worked at roulette. He was a sound guy and drummer. Yeah. So he, he lives here and he's the sound guy at this place, ZDB, which is kind of like elevated DIY, kind of like issue project room type space right. here. So that's where I, that's where I do my thing. So what we do is Sunday, the place is closed anyway. So we set up, rehearse a lot, like for six hours. And then we leave everything there. Monday, we show up at like six, six o'clock, talk through the set, no rehearsing and hit for two sets. And the, and the idea for me is to like take the school environment out of it and make it more like a real world gig because people just show up. Like people review the concerts. It's like a real thing. It's a real gig. Yeah. The real gig. And what's funny to me is like these, the Sunday rehearsals, it's like, dude, it's like, okay, like we're going to start like, it's like two till 8 PM. People might start showing up with their instruments, like maybe two thirty, three. We're making sound by four, maybe rehearsing by four thirty. It's like really like that. And it's like and taking a break at five. <laughs> dude, man, Lisbon, like cigarette break. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I don't get, I don't get mad. It's more just like, I need to find a way to like, I'm just not the kind of person to be like, show up at 2 p.m. where I'm locking the doors. Like, I'm just not like that. I wish that I was. I just, yeah. I'm not like that. I'm yeah. not that kind of, ta- I'm a taskmaster about the music for sure. Yeah. You know, like I told you I threatened to kill one of the drummers, but right. I'm not about, in terms of like time and stuff, it's just like, and, and people have even told me like, man, like you need to like, if, if your thing is, is showing people how the real world is, like in terms of the gig, you, you kind of have to get them to understand to, to start shit on time. So I try, but it's like, 
you know, it's it's definitely like I'm. De- it would definitely be going against the grain here, bringing some like super aggro, like Anglo energy into this place of just like, yeah, whatever. Like, let's have a glass <laughs> of wine and a cigarette and start two hours late. It's, that's it's, you know. So I, I, I so I don't know about that stuff. Um, so teaching it's that that part is difficult. I mean, just having this conversation with you, I've actually maybe what I should do is like is flip it and just get really punitive with people that are being too like too nice or like too shy or something like that. Like, all right, you haven't played at all. You mean bully the weak people? Bully, <laughs> bully the weak. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I have noticed that like one thing that seems to afflict manic. I mean, I did this tr- tour with these German guys back in March, the last tour that I did. And we were, t- we were cracking each other up on the train. Cause we were talking about like the amount of young, young jazz musicians that we meet, where their resting demeanor is this, like, like, like that. It's like, it's like a plague, you know? Yeah. So it's almost like that's the thing to, to, to fight. Of, and and um, sometimes you can kind of push against it and get something back as a teacher. And sometimes, sometimes you just can't. And like, it's, it's extremely difficult. It's some psychological shit. So if you're trying to get people to do their thing, then this like, classical model of like my way or the highway doesn't necessarily even make sense right you know if it's like okay we're gonna learn the brahms you know violin concerto this week be there too and learn have the first 10 pages memorized like that works for certain types of teaching but not if you're kind of trying to address more creative shit doesn't necessarily work like that and i don't think anybody's really figured out how it works so Mm -hmm. but i definitely noticed myself getting better as a teacher i'm not a naturally good teacher at all i'm like naturally not good at it and what's fun is to like do it a lot and like also to get older and like you just feel more comfortable in your own in your own skin as you get older first i mean just admitting you don't know shit mm-hmm. making being able to like assess like what people are like a little bit and kind of like make it civil like all that kind of stuff like i wasn't able to do that you know i was thrown into some teaching situations when i was young enough that i was like feeling like why the fuck is anyone listening to what i had to say i don't i don't know anything like i remember one time I did, a, I did this big tour uh, around the States. I was by myself, but I kind of like hooked up with different people in different places. So I, I was in San Diego for a couple of days and Dresser was like, Mark Dresser was like, oh, that's cool, man. Like I'll be on tour for a couple of days. Like why don't you sub for me for my classes? Like sub for me as a teacher for my classes. And these were like seminar classes, like, you know, like creative music 101 for grad students with Mark Dresser. And I'm like 26 or something. <laughs> and I was just like, I remember doing two. I did two in you a did row. It. Okay. I did two in a row. And of course, Mark was like, you'll be fine, man. You're great. Like, don't worry about it. I was like, what? So then I did two in a row. And one was for grad students who kind of knew a little bit about what was happening. And I just, I played a little bit and then people kind of asked questions and it was sort of like kind of, from what I remember, it was all right. And the next one was the seminar class, like undergraduates that are not, it's like their music class. They're, these are like computer science majors, like all types of people. And so I was like, well, I'll just do the same thing again. It's a different audience. So I played for 10 minutes and then it was just tumbleweeds, man, like nothing. And so I was just like, fuck, what do I, what do I say? Like, it's too big of a crowd to start picking on people. Uh-huh. Also, they're my, also they're my age. So that's weird. It was horrible. <laughs> Fucking awful. Damn, dude. I wish I, mean, I, I wish I could have been in on that. In the, Charles, in that Charles, Charles Curtis was there. I'm sure he has a lot to say. I mean, maybe he doesn't remember, but I remember him being there. Also, that's it's like fucking Charles Curtis is sitting right there. Like, uh-huh. 
Damn, I wish I could. I wish I could have been in the audience or the. <laughs> you know, it's like you talk to you hear comedians like Dave Chappelle. You know, he when after he kind of came back, I'm, he did a, uh, one of his you know many interviews on I think it was Letterman where he's like, it's easy it's easy for him to say okay, but he's like, you know, people ask me all the time like what happens if you're on stage and nobody's laughing and you're bombing, and Chappelle's like nothing happens, like nothing happens. You just do your act and then you go home, like. Okay, if you bomb all the time, then it's a problem, right? right. But yeah, so the and we all know this from also just playing playing concerts. Like sometimes you just bomb, it sucks. And to invoke you know, one of your favorites, Patrice O'Neill, there's this idea that like when you when you bomb, do you try to fight it or do you go into that bombing? You go energy? into it, and if you're Patrice, you take everyone down with you. Now, in a in a comedy show, taking everyone down with you can actually you can turn the tide. You can get people to laugh with you. Now, doesn't work. In music. I know. We, I know we had this this thing about how there is kind of subjective thing about craft in music, but that's not enough. And you can you can be bombing and be, even be playing well, and nothing you can do will get people to to like to get into it. Or I mean, people disliking it is for me way preferable to people tuning out. Yeah. You know, I feel like for for me, bombing is not people disliking it. Bombing is people just completely tuning out and not really feeling it and not not being engaged in the narrative of what's happening you know yeah i'm I'm thinking right now of the two worst gigs i ever had uh and (laughs) and i definitely felt like less of a piece of shit at the end of the gig where like the bartender shut the gig down and i was like asked to get off stage i was there for that it was a split solo oh no that was no that no no this was in, in in berlin Oh, um, but then but I remember we, 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 I saw that that happened in Brooklyn also. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then I played a gig at Zebulon one night where the bar was packed and, you know, that's exactly what five, talking about. five minutes in, I realized like nobody wants me to be here. Yeah, they're not booing. They're not, you know, making yeah. my life hard. But like this just sucks. And I, I think I played for like 20 minutes and felt like, okay, I, I made, you know what I mean? Like I, I felt like I got to quote unquote do my time though. No one would give a shit if I didn't, <laughs> you know? Well, you know, could have, could have, would have, should have. Like I think about these experiences like, okay. So like 2014, there's this infamous festival in Sardinia, like mm-hmm. the South coast of Sardinia. Um, and, there's a festival that happens in August, August, early September. It's been going on forever. And there was this one year where like around Thanksgiving, uh, they email. It was, it was mostly, I think Evan was the connector. They wanted him to like do a bunch of stuff, but then they started asking a lot of people to do shit. The emails, the invitations went out in around Thanksgiving. I remember really well. I was on the road, Thanksgiving time, late November. Can you do the, this gig? We're doing a, another festival in Sardinia, New Year's Eve. So basically in one month. So I think it was something where like they had a bunch of money that they had to spend mm-hmm. for, the, for their grant cycle, some weird Italian shit. So, so they're like, okay, we're going to buy plane tickets. This is happening in five weeks. Can you come do it? And it's just like, okay, this sounds amazing. I'm going to go to Sardinia like for the holidays. So, so we go and there's like these, these various gigs in this tent. And, you know, this part of the world, like even here where I am, it's like, it's not cold, but there's no heat anywhere. So it's always cold in the winter inside. Like there's right. always like, it's like 48 degrees everywhere all the time. You know, so, right. so the festival was going to be held in this, in this big like circus tent in, instead of the amphitheater. 
with some shitty heater, you know, only one heater, like right next to the bar. And so then it's like everyone, everyone was kind of double doing all kinds of double duty. So like I had like three gigs or something over, over a couple nights, new year's Eve, 2014 solo gig in this fucking circus tent at like 8 PM or some, some time where it's just like, nobody's drunk enough. No one really wants to listen to a concert and the sound system really wasn't, I think it was on, but it was like super quiet Everyone's just huddled near this heater, like super far away. Sounds miserable. Yeah, it was a disaster. And like, so I, I, I play. I don't remember a single thing about the playing. It was, a, it sucked. And then I got off the stage, and I remember saying to Evan, like, "Man, that was, that was fucking hard." He's like, "Yeah, of course." It, he was like, "It was, it was always going to be hard. You were doomed from the very beginning." <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like, it was like, no, man, you did, it was cool. It was cool. It's like, no, no, that it sucked, and it was supposed to suck. So let's go have a drink. <laughs> you know, God damn, like, that's oh, amazing. But. But I do think about like, okay, if I was in that situation again, what would I do? What would a more bossy musician do? Like, what would somebody, what would somebody that had been through the ringer more, who just, uh, I was thinking about it. Like, what could you kind of develop the type of like aura as a performer where you just go up there with no mic at all and somehow just get people to listen? I have no, I have no idea. Or I'm sure there's some people that would just be like, I'm not going to play under these conditions, you know? Right. Or whatever. So. That's tough. But I, I think what I realized pertinent to this conversation is like that was a nightmare gig, partially because I let I let it happen in that way. Yeah. You know? So You tried to you, you, you tried to, to make it work in that situation when you should have just subverted it somehow? Yeah, I should have I should have figured something out. I tried to accept that this is what the situation is I was gonna play into the microphone and that actually made it a bad gig. So yeah. I think it's more like in the future. Like last year I played the MERS Festival and they had this ultimately bad idea that they were going to i mean that, that the festival that, that festival they're known for from the musician standpoint of there's no sound checks there's only line check so you get up you set up they have really really good sound people you get up they they set everything up and you you play the gig and you might have like 15 minutes to get your shit ready you know mm-hmm. and that i've played that festival a lot it, it almost always works great now, I went there last year. I was supposed to play a solo gig, and they had tons of different, like, they were trying to just push the limit of how fast they could have turnover between bands. And so they were like, all right, for your gig, we want it. We have a microphone in the stands of, like, where people are sitting. We want you to stand just, like, in the audience and just play at this basically random spot. And I was just like, I'm not doing that. Like, that's a bad – I'm like, whose idea was this? And they're like, uh, the director. It's like, well – I can see what he's thinking, but like, this is not going to work. Like, no. it's just weird. So, but also like, how hard is it to get a mic on stage? The stage was full of shit. They were doing like a, ch- a changeover between like two 15 piece bands or something. So they're like, you can't use the stage. You don't want to play in the stands. So what do you want to do? And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to play amplified anyway. So why don't I go? What I did was I went up to the sound booth. I just played next to the sound guy in the booth in the dark. It was cool. It was like, it kind of different. It was like a minor success for me in terms of that shit. I was like, okay, this is going to be a nightmare gig. I'm going to be telling somebody about like in five years. Like, oh yeah. man, I I regretted that I didn't do something about this. So so for me, that's almost like you made it work. Like, yeah, yeah, kind of. All right, dude. I I think we did it. This has been you gotta awesome. Make pizzas. You well, gotta I got I, I got to start getting my oven warm and start doing my yeah. prep work. Yeah, I'm gonna go drink a beer outside. Oh man, I wish I was there. <laughs> yeah, someday, man. All right, thank you, Peter. I really appreciate it, man. Thanks, Jeremiah. This is really fun, man. I'll talk to you soon. Later. All right, that was Peter Evans. 
Uh, I hope that you guys enjoyed that. Always a blast. Always, always, always a blast. Uh, I've been having long conversations with Peter for for many years now. And uh, like I said, just one of the best dudes around. Check him out. Go to moresmorerecords.com. Uh, lots of great music. The new record, Being and Becoming, is outstanding. The music you hear behind me is from his new record called Horizons. I, I'm not sure when that's out yet, but but check it out. Check out Sistema Mundi Totius, my new record. It would mean a lot to me. I want to share this music. I want people to hear it. That's it. Uh, I'm going to now talk to my friend Max about Cacio e Pepe. All right. So the thing with Italian food, uh, pasta specifically, but all Italian food in general, is you always want to use the best ingredients possible. Uh, and you want to fuck them up as little as possible. So you don't want to over-prepare anything. For me personally, I think for Cacio e Pepe, you want to use a dry pasta. And I'll explain why, but you want it, again, I prefer like spaghetti or bucatini. A dry pasta that you can sort of shape over the course of like 9 to 11 minutes. So first things first, ingredients. Cacio e Pepe, like a lot of Roman pasta preparations, is very simple. It's about very few ingredients. Um, you know, in Lazio, the traditionally, a lot of the pastas are, are based around sort of peasant preparations. Cacio e Pepe is no exception. The, as the name implies, it's cheese and pepper. That's the star of the show. Uh, another thing about Cacio e Pepe and every culture kind of has this with certain dishes you will it's hard to find two people that will agree on the same cacio e pepe i think you know yes restaurants do it but it's a dish that's really you know a home style dish now one of the reasons that restaurants often can put out pastas that are you know far superior to pastas that people make at home is because they're cooking pastas all day long in the same salted water, what you end up with is a really starchy, salty water that you can use as you're finishing the pasta. You use that to sort of emulsify the sauce and bring everything together. And you definitely want to uh, keep that in mind when you're making cacio e pepe. So step one, best ingredients possible. You can use Parmigiano, Reggiano. Uh, you could use Pecorino. You could use Grana Padana. You could use a combination of these, but, you know, a dry, hard-aged Italian cheese. I would say for the pepper, you know, what I do at home is I make a combination in my pepper grinder of, you know, black pepper, green peppercorn, and then I'll add, um, like, Timut, you know, like a Sichuan peppercorn. Not a lot, but just a little bit to kind of add some character and dimension. This is going to sound a little bit weird, but going back to that thing about the restaurant, I will boil my pasta in as little water as possible, in a pan, not in a pot. Heavily salted water, and you want to cook it until it's just before al dente. Uh, and always follow the instructions on the box. Pastas are different. It's, it's very hard to, to make a blanket statement about cooking time, so you always want to follow the, the instruction on the box. So if it says al dente in nine minutes, I'll cook it for eight minutes. I'll reserve some of the cooking liquid of the pasta, put the pasta aside. You know, usually about a cup of the cooking liquid, which should be salty and it should be cloudy white from the starch. In the same pan, uh, I'll get some butter going. Butter and olive oil combination. And I will 
add lots of medium to coarse ground peppercorns in the pan. And you want them to sort of bloom in that oil and in that fat. And once you can kind of smell the aroma uh, coming up from the peppercorns, then what you do, drop the pasta back in and sort of swirl the pan so it gets coated with all that. And you have to be, this is the point in the, in, where you have to be really quick and kind of get things done ha quickly. There, you start adding uh, a little bit of the cooking liquid and shaving the cheese in and just stirring, 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 stirring. And again, this is an emulsified pasta dish. So you're, you're looking for like a glistening. You don't want like a, a lot of liquid beneath the pasta, um, but you want it to be, you know, shiny and wet. What you want is for everything to just cling to the pasta. That's really what you're looking for. And I didn't say it a second ago, but do not use pre-grated cheese. That stuff is sawdust. It's no good for anything. Uh, and that's it. I mean, that's cacio e pepe. It's not, you know, restaurants are selling cacio e pepe for $25 a bowl. And yeah, sure, you know, it's good. But it, it's, 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 it's meant to be a simple, satisfying dish. And that's how I make my cacio e pepe. So I hope that helps. Uh, that's it. Hope you guys are uh, doing okay. Talk to you next week.